Robert Mahoney, thank you very much for joining me. I'm very glad to be here. Now, today marks a very sad day for me personally. Fifteen years ago today, uh, I survived uh, an ambush uh, that killed three of my colleagues in, in Afghanistan. And ever since, I have thought a lot about um, journalistic safety and how our jobs have changed. What have you seen in, in the last 15 years? How do you think war reporting, uh, reporting in conflict zones has changed in the last 15 years? Well, it's changed in, in a number of ways. Um, one of the biggest changes, which is a more recent phenomenon, is that journalists have become targets themselves, that a journalist is of use to a group such as a militia, not as a messenger, not as someone to get their story out, but as someone to hold ransom for money or for political propaganda purposes. This phenomenon has really taken off uh, with the rise of the Islamic State in Syria and Iraq. How has this... What has changed in the way news organizations then uh, approach uh, sending reporters into conflict zones like Syria or Iraq or somewhere else where or Mali where they can you know get kidnapped or um, they're held for ransom or killed uh, for propaganda purposes uh, uh, on you know social media? Well, there are two. One of the big changes is that there are now two distinct groups of journalists out there in the field bringing us news. One is the traditional group that we know from the days of, uh, you know, news organizations that had large bureau networks around the world, and the others are freelancers. And what has happened is that with the economics of the news business being turned on its head by the advent of cheap technology and the Internet, is that... Um, there are fewer and fewer staff correspondents out there. Now, those news organizations that do have staff correspondents in the field have, for the most part, stepped up and are doing a lot more to look after their safety. They send, they send journalists on hostile environment and first aid training courses. They provide them with safety equipment, which they never used to, such as uh, flak jackets, bulletproof vests, helmets, good communications, and they make sure that they have uh, proper planning and um, proper evacuation protocols in place. So if you're working for the CBC or the BBC or the New York Times, uh, you are going to be much better looked after in 2016 than even when you were ambushed back in 2001 after the 9-11 incident. So that's one, but that's one set of, of journalists. They're better looked after than they used to be. When I first started in journalism, we were just sent to conflict zones and war zones with no training and no equipment. And you just looked at what other journalists that you were working alongside did, and you learned from them on the job. Now that's different, because the environment is probably more dangerous. But there's another group of journalists out there now, freelancers, who are providing a lot of the content that we now consume on our screens, uh, on our TV uh, sets, and also um, in our newspapers. Those freelancers do not have staff jobs, and they are not looked after in the same way by uh, news organizations, and they are 
on the most part, fairly young. Uh, some of them are experienced, some are learning. Um, but they're able to do this work now because the technology allows them to go to places and to file their stories and upload their pictures to the, uh, to the web, whereas um, even 15 years ago, you couldn't do that. You had to have the backing of a news organization that had the communications to be able to put your stuff out. So those journalists, those freelancers are at risk, and they are the ones that really concern me. And what we're trying to do at the Committee to Protect Journalists is to get um, the news organizations that hire those freelancers to treat them as they would treat their own staff. I know, for example, um, a couple of newspapers in Canada uh, have a policy now where they don't hire freelancers anymore for this kind of uh, um, hostile environment assignments, that uh, they would rather have no coverage at all than uh, send a freelancer who doesn't have the full backing of uh, the newsroom resources, you know, um, security specialists. Uh, what do you think about that? Well, I think that, I mean, it's up to each individual organization to decide what its level of tolerance of risk is. But um, freelancers do want to go out there. They do want to make, um, they do want to make a living. They do want to make a name for themselves. So I think that not using freelancer content may not be the only way to go about this. Um, what has happened is that since those horrific videos were posted by Islamic State uh, two years ago of the beheadings of journalists that were held uh, captive in, uh, in Syria, is that the news industry has been shaken up globally. And uh, the Committee to Protect Journalists has worked with news organizations, and we have formed a group called the Culture of Safety Alliance, which now has some 90 news organizations, including all the big North American broadcasters and all the international wires, signed up where they, as news organizations, pledge to treat freelancers that they employ in conflict zones as they would their own staff to give them all the training and safety equipment that they would give their own staff. And the other side of the bargain is that freelancers undertake that they will get that training, they will have the right equipment, and they will have the right communications and safety protocols in place. So both sides are coming to the table um, with a sense of responsibility about safety. So in those cases, I think if you get those freelancers who have the required training and have the required equipment, then news organizations uh, could employ them to do uh, frontline reporting. The problem is the freelancers that don't know either how to look after themselves or take inordinate risks. And, and there, there is, a, I can understand why some foreign editors and commissioning editors would be reluctant to employ them. And that, that, that seems to me to be a, um, a wise decision, because otherwise you could be accused of, you know, encouraging people to take risks. Now, one of the aspects um, of this new support structure that uh, came up is uh, war insurance. And it's a very expensive uh, proposition, even for news organizations like CBC, for which I work. Um, are there any uh, programs to help freelancers to get access to this kind of war insurance? Yeah, I mean, there's... There are the um, a Culture of Safety Alliance, which I talked to you about earlier. That is trying to put together a, um, 
affordable insurance uh, package for uh, North American-based freelancers. There are uh, other schemes for uh, freelancers who don't come from North America because of the insurance industry here is different from, say, in Europe. And there are some schemes that are run where freelancers can get health insurance or evacuation insurance. Most uh, freelancers do not have kidnap and ransom insurance, and kidnap and ransom insurance can be very expensive. And um, one of the um, sometimes one of the uh, conditions for having it is not to talk about it. And sometimes news organizations don't even tell their staff that they have kidnap and ransom insurance because to let that be known makes people even more, uh, you know, as a uh, target. So it is difficult. It's difficult to get basic medical and evacuation insurance, but we're, we're working on it. And when I say we, I mean, you know, the, um, the news industry generally, uh, the media and uh, press freedom organizations like the one I'm working for are working to try to get affordable insurance uh, for freelancers because it is a big um, it is a big issue. I mean, you know, if, if you need to be evacuated, it can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. And even small things like equipment replacement. I mean, one of the things that happens a lot is that journalists lose their equipment. It gets smashed up. It gets confiscated by uh, the authorities or, or whatever. And um, if you're a freelancer on a tight budget, if you lose a couple of Nikon cameras, that's a lot of money to replace that. Mm-hmm. Now, we talked about uh, physical health insurance. Let's talk about mental health. Uh, is, uh, do you see a culture change in how news organizations approach uh, mental health of uh, journalists assigned to cover uh, conflicts, natural disasters, and stuff like that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the psychological health of, of uh, journalists and recognition of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder is a real phenomenon. Has that as that has progressed in the military and in uh, security services generally, it has also come into play now in uh, in journalism. Um, it didn't used to be. I mean, you know, journalists didn't just like soldiers didn't like talking about it. Um, they would find all kinds of bad ways of dealing with it, like withdrawing or drinking or whatever. Um, but now it's built in as part of the the training, self care. Um, when people return from a conflict zone, or just even dealing with victims. I mean, you don't actually have to be on the front line in the bang-bang to get PTSD. There's a case of a photo editor at a wire service who was, uh, who was uh, traumatized because every day he was editing photographs of terrible um, uh, events like bombings and murders and by force of repetition of seeing this, uh, these images, it, it, it had an effect on his mental health. So there is a, an awareness now, and there are programs in place, and uh, we at the Committee to Protect Journalists try to help with this. There are experts. I mean, there's, there's is it Dr. Feinstein in Canada who's a world expert on this. Um, there, are, uh, there are lots of programs in place. I know, for example, at uh, Columbia Journalism School here in New York, there's the DART Center, which is uh, dedicated to um, psychological health of journalists, and it forms part of the training now at journalism schools. So we've made great strides in this particular area, I think. Where do you see the next big issue, the, uh, the big issue that uh, the news industry has to confront uh, when it comes to safety or um, conflict reporting? 
Well, there, there, there are several issues. Um, one of them is that the safety component has to keep pace with the incredible um, economic changes and technological changes that are, that, that are upending the industry. Uh, as more and more people are able to go out into the field and bring back images and news, um, how do they fit in um, into these new organizations, some of which are startups and don't have a culture of safety inside them, don't have necessarily experienced news people inside them, but nevertheless are hungry for content? How do we get them um, on board the, uh, you know, the, the, the safety coalition so that they know how to deal with um, reporters working on the front line, that they don't become loose cannons and are encouraging people on the promise of making your name to go and get, um, to go and get photos in areas where they shouldn't be going to get photos. Another issue is um, access. Um, what has happened with the big military is we've gone to a situation now where it's very difficult for journalists in most theaters to report independently. They have to be embedded with, um, with one side or the other. Um, this really we saw happening for the first time in the first Gulf War in 1991, where it was very difficult to uh, report on the U.S. invasion of Kuwait and then Iraq, unless you were with the, uh, the coalition forces. It happened again in 2003, where, again, you couldn't really run around much of Iraq. People did, and people still do, but it's very dangerous. And in Afghanistan, where you were, it's very difficult to, um, as, as a foreigner to do um, reporting. So there's an issue there of, of, uh, of safety, but there's also an issue of if the only access that you have is through one side or the other and you want to get an independent view, you may be more exposed to danger doing it that way from both sides actually so that that's something that we that, that's that's a balance that we need to make sure that we're getting right in terms of just getting the you know independent reporting from battle areas and not having always to be embedded with the US military for example one of the issues that came up recently here in Montreal uh, is uh, the ability of various authorities to eavesdrop on uh, communications and safety of sources. Um, how much of a concern is that, that, uh, um, you know, authorities now, whether, you know, governments or anybody with access to sophisticated intercept technology or hack hacking tools can basically get into uh, a journalist's phone and uh, listen or get metadata on all his calls, texts, emails, and figure out who his sources are? Yeah, this is an incredibly important question that you've raised. Um, in the safety training that journalists used to get, um, there was a very big emphasis on physical security, on you know how you cover civil disturbance, where do you stand, how do you negotiate a, um, an active field of fire, and then a big emphasis on first aid, battlefield first aid. That was all great. There was nothing on information or digital security. Now that's changing, and for me, it, it's an incredibly important part. It's actually as important as the physical security because compromised digital security can lead to physical danger and physical insecurity. So now 
one of the things that we are promoting at the Committee to Protect Journalists is, is an awareness of this and giving people the knowledge that they need in order to try to secure their communications or to minimize the risks that they put themselves at or their sources. So that is using encryption, using end-to-end encryption, using um, apps to communicate that are secure um, rather than ones that can be tapped into easily by security services. Um, not carrying around all your information and all your contacts on your phone when it can be seized, either by crossing a border or by going into a, you know, an area where, where police may, uh, may stop you. All these things are new, and journalists are, are catching up to it, but it, it's taking a long time because we're all so used to the ease of technology that some of us don't even bother to you know, put passwords on our phone, let alone encrypt our emails. So there's, there's, a whole, there's a whole series of things that people can take from super, super secure, which is time-consuming and you need knowledge, to very, very simple things. And it's the, it's the very simple things that we are trying to encourage journalists to do to protect themselves and their sources. Because if you don't have confidentiality uh, with sources as a reporter, then no one's going to talk to you. And, you know, some, some journalists I know, particularly investigative journalists, are going old school again. They're going back pre-digital, and they're only talking to people person to person. Some people I know are even using typewriters. You know, air-gap computers are not good enough for them, and they're, they're typing up notes um, <laughs> on a typewriter. Uh, anything to avoid being surveilled uh, by the security uh, services. And I think, you know, since the Edward Snowden revelations a couple of years ago, um, you're not paranoid if you start doing that. I think you're probably being very prudent if you do it. Thank you very much. This was very, very interesting. Uh, you're, you're more than welcome.